Hey listeners, this is Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia. After more than a decade of venture building, bootstrapping, scaling, and now investing in Southeast Asia, I sit down with founders, investors, and entrepreneurs who share their hard-earned lessons and stories for the benefit of the Asia ecosystem and beyond. Today, we get to hear from Don Fan. Don and I go way back to one of my first venture building exercises in the region, Zalora, Vietnam. Ever since then, Don has been an institution to the startup and investing community in Vietnam and broadly the region. He's also co-founded Food Panda in Vietnam, ran his own e-commerce startup in the babies vertical. He's been involved in education tech, helping VCs from sourcing and due diligence, and now helping equity research in the crypto space as well. On top of this, he's a full-time job at a large global tech firm, which we will leave out for now. He's one of those amazing super connectors and has a grind and tenacity unparalleled only by a few others that I would know. I get to catch up with Don a few times a year, and every time I'm learning something new for sure, whether it be mental models, new frameworks, technical ideas, and many more things. This episode happens to have some of the most buzzwords I've ever seen, something I typically dislike, but in this case is very relevant to what's happening in Vietnam. This was the last episode I recorded in 2021, which is a great update on what's happening with crypto and blockchain in Vietnam. We get to discuss Axie Infinity, decentralization versus centralization, Web3, DeFi, and what entrepreneurs and builders should be focusing on if they want to make an impact in the region. This episode is great if you're looking for a broad overview. Some of the ideas may be more specific, but definitely worth your time if you're interested in the space. Personally, I noticed I wasn't completely on my game with my questions or following some of the idea threads, but we will definitely make up for this for the next time Don is back on the pod. If you're ready to learn, let's dive right in. All right, Don Fan, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good, Alex. It's good to see you. Yeah, I mean, after a year of planning this, we finally uh, pulled the trigger and got together, right? Yeah. Um, so just three quick questions to get to know who we're talking about for the audience, uh, just to know who you are and uh, who we're dealing with. So uh, in your words, who is Don Fan and uh, what is your story? Uh, so I am based in Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, like Alex, I'm uh, Vietnamese American, but I've lived in Southeast Asia for over a decade now. And, uh, you know, Alex and I... Uh, you know, met each other nearly a decade ago doing uh, an e-commerce startup called Zalora. And I have stayed in the startup industry. Um, you know, I did some other e-commerce startups, uh, an ed tech startup. And now with blockchain startups, you know, this has kind of taken over my life in the last few months. Um, you know, so right now I'm primarily looking at blockchain NFT games um, and DeFi projects. And you know, this is something that's happened relatively recently, but, um, you know, I, I guess one of the reasons I wanted to do this with Alex is just kind of give him an update on, uh, the Vietnamese startups. Uh, you know, so Alex actually got like a front row mm-hmm. seat, uh, nearly a decade ago, you know, when you and I were trying to bring capital into Vietnam and to do startup clones. And, you know, it was an amazing time to be here back then because we kind of felt like we were part of this first wave and. I guess what I wanted to report to you is that like the second wave is like deeper, um, more innovative and more creative and just generally like just yeah. really exciting and really cool. Um, you know, I, I think you and I knew that when we were here, um, that we're primarily going to be working on clones and trying to implement ideas that have worked elsewhere. And then at some point yeah. there would be an inflection point where like, you know, there were enough people who had the technical resources and the entrepreneurial chops and, you know, most importantly, the capital, um, to fund these really innovative ideas. And, and yeah. so, you know, one thing that, that has become really apparent to me is that the technical talent in Vietnam, um, 
is well above average. And so cryptocurrency, uh, blockchain ideas are, are taking off here. Um, and there are a couple of reasons. Um, I, I think one of them might just be the fact that like, you know, Vietnam had a really strict capital controllers regime. And so, uh, a really normal pain point that like you and I had, or that I've had for like 10 years is like, you know, what do you do if you need to get money to pay off your student loans in the U S or something? Yeah. And, and this is actually like mm -hmm. a reason a lot of people don't come back. Um, cause it'd be so difficult. Um, and so, you know, Vietnam ends up being a country where, um, uh, cryptocurrency adoption is, uh, very, very high. Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there's so much to, to unpack with that, uh, good, good intro. Um, so for, for, for first off then, you know, I think you were talking about how things have changed for Vietnam. Uh, I wanted to know on a personal note, right? I fell for a lot of your career, you know, after we built Zolora and you did Food Panda, you, you know, you were doing your own startups for a long time uh, before your recent gig in corporate uh, with Amazon. And then um, do you feel that you kind of should have held on longer to catch this wave? Or do you, how do you feel about, do you think you missed it? Like, you know, this is like a oh, kind no, of new no, renaissance, this, right? Th th this is a different wave. Um... No, yeah. if anything, the, um, I guess, I think the way that you and I took part of, um, you can kind of see, you could see why this wave is, is, is more exciting. Um, and, and the benefits, um, how familiar are you with like the term, like decentralization and web 3.0? Like, have you heard these, uh, these terms before? Should I take some time to explain? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's okay. let's do it for the audience. So I, I'm I'm familiar with it. I've been talking to a lot of crypto experts. A lot of like, and it's kind of more the the past few months. I think this kind of terms come up. So I mean, I guess right, exactly. Right, right. How how would you define Web three versus Web two versus even Web one? I say, right. Okay. So here I'm totally going to be cribbing from Chris Dixon. Um, Chris Dixon is a venture capitalist at Andreessen Horowitz, and he's got like a tweet, uh, a chain of tweets and some essays on his site. And so he's saying web 1.0 is going to be, um, uh, you know, the first iteration of the web that was 20 plus years ago, that was, you know, kind of more chaotic and libertarian, um, and had pretty quirky, small communities. Um, web 2.0 would be yeah. this kind of centralized, um, fang era where you have these gigantic, powerful, centralized tech companies, um, you know, like Facebook and Apple, um, and Google. And, and, and so a lot of the, the critique of, um, the, the incumbents is about how centralized and how powerful they are. Um, web 3.0, yeah. um, is really about the power of decentralization and the, the way it's relevant for entrepreneurs in Vietnam, um, is really how they raise money. And so sort of the big story to come out of Vietnam in the past year is this really innovative play to earn game called Axie Infinity, uh, which had been on my radar, uh, over two years ago. And it was a, a team I'd been familiar with. Um, and I had seen the presentation and I'd seen their pitches before, but I, at the time I, you know, I, I did not grasp, I didn't grasp what they were trying to do. Um, you know, I knew that they were doing NFTs and they had like Pokemon creatures and there was a game. But um, I, I didn't realize they were trying to build on build out like a full on economy um, inside of this, and and so since they've they've taken off and become wildly successful, um, so to give you an idea of like how wildly successful they've been, um, 
I mean, the, the big headline is that, you know, they just raised over $150 million from uh, Chris Dixon's fund, Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and they're a pioneer in this play to earn business model. Um, well, what, know, thing, uh, what time was that was happening? Um, was I, mean, I, I think I knew of the company in 2019. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, I had, I, I had seen, um, you know, what they were doing and you know, one thing that I, I guess I appreciate more now is, um, they actually had, uh, enthusiastic users and traction back then. Mm -hmm. Um, you yeah. know, they, they, you know, their, their first, uh, in outside money, their investor was talking about how, you know, when they had 400 users, um, you know, their users were actually posting, uh, videos about X and YouTube. So, you know, they had a very strong mm -hmm. engaged community. Um, yeah. and so you know, one of the big stories here too, is that, um, you know, Axie did not do that well with uh, traditional venture capital uh, investors. Yeah. And, you know, there has been this major boom in venture capital financing in Vietnam um, that Axie, for the most part, got overlooked by. And, yeah. and what kept the company alive was uh, the ICO process. So the initial coin offering process. Mm -hmm. And, okay. you know, there, there, there are a lot of different names for this process now. You know, you'll hear TGE, like a token generation event or an IDO. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I actually like the original ICO term because I think it explains what's going on um, the best. Yeah. And um, I, I think this part's really innovative. Um, and, and this is a big, big part of the story for Vietnam. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of problems with like fundraising uh, traditionally. Um, you know, going through VC route. And, and this is basically what you and I went through, um, with rocket internet, you know, rocket was like heavily, um, VC, uh, financed and the startups that I did afterwards yeah. that, you know, you were trying to go through these VC gatekeepers. Um, and, yeah. and for whatever reason, the ones in Vietnam and the ones in Southeast Asia, um, other than like, you know, one investor for the most part whiffed on Axie, um, you know, this could have been a career defining, yeah. uh, pick and they didn't go through it. Correct. So, so Axie goes yeah. to the process of going through ICO, uh, and they're able to raise, uh, you know, more than 3 million and, yeah. you know, they were selling the token for like eight to 10 cents and, you know, it went above $126. So, you know, you would have yeah. gotten like 120,000% return. That's pretty, that's pretty insane. If you, if you think about where, where it's out now. And, um, I think what's really interesting is you, you talk about the macro environment and I think this constraint comes out of a few things like. The government regulation, like I, I remember when I was leaving Vietnam, I had to carry a lot of cash out and I yeah. actually got in trouble yeah. for that. Right. And then, um, you know, and this, this, yeah, if I, I thought it was 10,000, like most countries. So I got whacked and I got, you know, I had to find a creative way to figure out to get my money out of there. Um, but, you know, this sounds very similar to what I've been experiencing recently. Um, do you remember Justin An from Zalora? Yeah. Yeah, so he recently, uh, I helped raise, uh, do a syndication round with him. So I invested in his current crypto startup as well. And his main users in India have the exact same problem that you're describing. The, the main reason why they use his uh, company, which is a crypto wallet, to pay their kind of freelance workers is that you know capital controls are so strict. So I think there's this very interesting trend in the emerging markets where, you know, it's this, there's a real problem that this actually solves. Right. And I think a lot of the investors, um, due to whatever reason, you know, VC 
you know, it's very far behind compared to Europe and even further behind compared to the US, right? So I think a lot of these people kind of miss this. And I think for a long time, just like Vietnam was like, you know, in the shadows of, you know, typical big investors going to Indonesia because of how, how big Indonesia was. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think a big theme that emerges from this is that, you know, you could have homegrown unicorns uh, from a big, big enough country like, you know, Vietnam, 100 million people, Philippines, 100 million people that you don't necessarily need this big TAM story of 600 million people to kind of do what grabbed it, right? It's very possible that, you know, you you kind of build it from different ways. And I think uh, the, the main story behind this is that uh, Web3 is kind of powering that in, in a sense, right? So uh, before we move forward with this, this kind of stories and, and the details, uh, why don't you tell us what you think the long-term vision of Web3 is, you know, what does the future kind of look like, you know, from the extension of Web2 into Web3? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, okay, so I guess I'm I'm generally optimistic, but do I have like a very uh, uh, determined view? Do I have a very clear vision of like what the future looks like? Um, not exactly. I mean, I, I I suspect like some of the big incumbents will get disrupted, um, and then we'll have probably decentralized companies replace them that will be like potentially even larger in scale. Um, the I mean, I guess we could, we, I, I think I probably have, uh, some idea of where this is going, um, on the DeFi side. And, and I guess one area I'd love to talk to you about okay. is, um, I, you know, I know before you did Zalora, you were, you were running a hedge fund. Um, and a, a lot of the interesting stuff, um, sort of financial innovation. I, I think a lot of the smartest people that would have gone to quant funds before are now doing, uh, DeFi projects. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I guess to go, to go back with the Axie thing before, um, one thing that, that has been very clear from, from my work is that like, if you're an entrepreneur in Vietnam now, um, if you were trying to raise capital five years ago, 10 years ago, it was incredibly difficult. And, and one thing is we would ascribe it to yeah. VC investors. Like there weren't enough VC investors. Now there are, there are a lot and you know, you, you'll meet people who are venture capitalists actively looking for startups now. Um, and it, it yeah. almost feels like it's too little too late. And so, you know, one question I've asked a lot of VC friends is, do you think the ICO process has the potential to disrupt your industry? And the answer so far has been, yeah. uh, unanimously yes. So, um, so I guess, I guess, you know, here we can kind of go through like, and, and Alex, it sounds like you've invested recently in a company. Um, you know, if you're going through a VC process. Um, you know, there are a lot of problems here. And I think, I think one is just kind of the incentive structure, um, going forward, VCs have to defend the, the pay structure. So if they have like a two and 20 structure, like, um, 2% of the assets under management and 20% of the profits, um, no. you know, for someone who is familiar with, um, raising money through ICO or a TGE event, the obvious question is, you know, does the VC actually deserve, uh, this much? And, you know, the, I think there is going to be margin yeah. pressure on VCs going forward. Yeah. And I mean, I think it, it only gets uh, worse from here on out because to, my, my opinion is that VC as an asset class is still very small. And I think compared to the whole financial system and how much money and cash has been since, you know, QE early days till now, there's more money that's going to pour in. Right. So it's I think uh, that. That's going to change a lot of dynamics. I think, you know, because of valuations are skyrocketing across the board from U.S. to to Asia, uh, you know, naturally, and also with you know the combination of DeFi and crypto and bit, you know blockchain, that this dynamic does change. And and even just the the whole 
um, I mean, uh, you know, from Series A onwards gets disrupted as well. You know, you have the, the crossover funds like Tiger and the BCGs coming in, McKinsey's coming in. At the same time, you know, the rise of single GPs is, is a thing. And, you know, uh, for example, Jason Calacan is uh, pioneering doing media and getting, you know, recurring income from an actual business and then doing investing at early stage. Right? So there's there's so many ways you could slice it now. And then, you know, I think what you're talking about on from the, you know, the, the Web3 side is that, that it gets further even exacerbated of what we're seeing. And, um, you know, it's just like you said, it's going to get more competitive. I guess it gets more interesting. But I do still think there's room to play if you're on the ground and at least for early stage. If you are, you know, if you have credibility, um, you you know, a lot of these early stage guys that I talk to, they actually do need help navigating what it's like early days and the pains and the processes. I think that doesn't really change. Uh, but, you know, maybe for, you know, growth funds or, you know, later stage funds, maybe that gets a little bit more blurred where you could, you know, skip it. You could do ICOs. You could go straight to direct listings. You could do all these other things that, you know, it changes. And, you know, places like Vietnam finally get some more light. You know, other big guys finally see that they could do big things that come in. And now there's going to be a lot of noise that follows that. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. With that in mind, though, do, do you think that Web3 is just another extension of the internet. Why do we need to label it? Isn't it just going to be the internet in the future of how we call it? Or yeah, is probably. there a reason why I need to you know, split it yeah, off? Yeah. And, 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 and I think, I think you'll, you'll know there's mass adoption when uh, basically everyone is interacting with like a decentralized app or a DAP uh, and not realizing it. Yeah. And, and that's probably the okay, way. Okay. So, and so then let's, let's talk about centralized versus decentralized, because I think this is a term that's, uh, used often, but not really well understood. So what exactly in your mind and your your words is a decentralized internet? And how does that compare to what we're seeing now? Right. Okay. So, so like, I guess this is the big conceptual thing. Um, yeah. If it has to go through a central clearinghouse, if it has to go through a central company, it's centralized. And so well, kind of the, okay. the, ins, the, the technological breakthrough with, with Bitcoin is that you could have, uh, you know, trustless transactions. And, you know, yeah. because of a proof of work system, you could confirm that, you know, you don't have a double spending problem, um, that, mm -hmm. you know, someone could send you money and you would receive it and, and you're good to go. Like you don't need a central clearinghouse, um, to validate this. And that one insight can be carried over to a lot of different domains. And, um, the, I think the, like, I, I think Alex, you were an economics student in uni, right? Yeah. Right. So, you know, one idea is, um, uh, coast zero. And so the idea with Coase theorem is like, um, the coordination problem of the company. So, you know, why does a company ever hire anyone directly? Why don't they just use like, you know, hundred percent part-time consultants. And, mm -hmm. uh, the idea with Coase is that like there's transaction costs. And so one reason you yeah. centralize and you actually hire people and you bring them in-house is that like, you know, it just lowers communication transaction costs. And, and so yeah. on decentralization, this is going to be like. This is trying to take that idea to its limits. Like, you know, can we um, have a decentralized organization and still work effectively? And so the people that are pushing the boundaries are trying to create decentralized organizations. And and I suspect it's going to be, yeah. um, you know, I suspect there's going to be a lot of innovation here. Um, you know, right now, I think people are getting used to working um, remotely um, and in different cities. Yeah. But like, you know, this could potentially accelerate that trend. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think you're, you're really focusing on the, the political aspect, right? Because it's like, you know, how many individuals or platforms control the actual computer systems or network that the Internet is made up of, right? And but I mean, from from a, you know, from a actual physical standpoint, we're talking about 
these are still clusters. I mean, albeit, you know, maybe big clusters are sitting in the US, big clusters are sitting in, in, in Europe physically where the, the data gets sent though, right? So right. from an actual, you know, st structural standpoint, are, are we still not in a decentralized kind of internet? It's just that legally, you know, a few platform players are a clearinghouse, but that's more of a legal structure, right? But, you know, say if I split it in half, does it still really run? Uh, to I think to a certain degree, yes, or am I wrong in, this, in thinking this way? Yeah. Okay. So I guess the other thing I should tell you is that like, you know, up until recently, I was like a fairly big crypto skeptic. And, and so one thing that people oh, really? will point to, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and one of the really salient criticisms is about, um, how centralized mining for Bitcoin became and okay. the amount of power that the Ethereum foundation has, uh, within Ethereum and, exactly. and, and so you can push this idea, you know, really hard, like with any of these uh, blockchain companies, is the company itself too decentralized? If a company has like, you know, more than 50% of their employees in one city, in one office, is that truly a decentralized organization? You know, I'm, I'm more than happy yeah. to, um, you know, let founders uh, push it however they want if they think it's effective for the organization. Because, you know, if you hire the best engineers yeah. throughout the globe, you know, that could work if, if you can find a way to lower transaction costs. Well, I mean, it's it, that, that, and I think that's one of my thoughts, too, is that as the tech develops, uh, you, you build it around, I mean, it gets, this gets a little bit philosophical, but you build it around, you know, human nature and, and the needs of social, social, you know, social structure, like it's the tech will reflect that. So in, in that kind of sense, you know, I, I don't see how it's possible to be fully decentralized, especially when you start accounting to the fact that you have a big gang of governments who wants to probably be involved in that somehow. Which means, to some extent, you need to be centralized, and and that also, you know, leads into the other points of permissionless and trustless. You know, at some point, you you know, for this to work, you will have to centralize identity, right? And when the centralizing identity is also, you know, goes against the tenets of, you know, European and, his, and American historical context of, you know, not wanting to give up privacy, right? So I, I struggle to see, you know, what exactly does this decentralization really mean, uh, you know, other than the fact, you know, maybe from the, the political standpoint that you said, yes, you know, not, not necessarily, you know, from a platform playlist and you don't need permission, but I don't, you know, I, I still think it converges at some point where you get benefits of scale by clustering things together, you know, and then at some point you still need to also connect to different clusters, which means there's going to be another layer, right? A digital layer, just kind of like when, you know, web one with Cisco was being developed. Right. They, they needed to send data packets between mainframes, between East Coast and West Coast, right. but they needed a router to kind of solve that. Right. So right. The, essentially what we're doing is that the, digi the digital version of this. So I don't really see how we fully ever fully decentralized. It gets a little bit more decentralized, but it's, you know, I don't see it as being less like this uh, be all end all, like, you know, power, completely power to the people and destroys the governments, you know. No, I yeah. No, I mean, if, 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 if anything, like, you know, because so much wealth has been created or transferred recently. Um, yeah. You know, one of the thing about one of the things about like investing and buying in these like crypto assets is that like it, it one concern is it seems to disproportionately benefit the early adopters or almost too much so. Well, you know, you're asking kind of about the the regulatory side. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton got some headlines yeah. uh, a few weeks ago about you know saying that this could be destabilizing from a, a macro view. And I I I think that's right. Um, you know, yesterday I was reading the IMF so blog. Too. Um, you know, I was, I was trying to see what the IMF is thinking about this stuff and, you know, they had a pretty boring yeah. boilerplate, uh, web post about, you know, how there should be international coordination about this. And I think this is like, um, you know, in, in terms of it, of an international coordinated response to 
cryptocurrency and decentralization, um, I'm, I, I, I don't think it's gonna be very effective. Um, you know, I think countries yeah. are, have very different, uh, incentives here and are going to have trouble coordinating amongst themselves. Um, and there, I think it's going to be an HR problem too. I think they're going to struggle to find, uh, people who are kind of like hip to what's going on. Well, let's, let's, let's put let's put a pause on that and let, let's jump into, you know, if you're an investor or if you're a builder at this point, you know, how are you seeing that you should partake in building up? You know, what should you be solving for, you know, Web3 to be realized? Oh, sure. Okay. That's kind of a cool question. Um, so, I, you know, I, I read a lot of white papers like every day. And, you know, I, I, so let me, I guess, tell the audience. So white papers are these documents where you kind of outline uh, what you're trying to build. And, and you can think of it as like kind of a sales pitch, but also like uh, a man on how you're going to build a company. And so... Uh, I, I read a lot of these every day and I read them seriously. So if you're a founder that's treating this like homework before, you know, you, you, yeah. uh, list your token on a public exchange, uh, you know, yeah. I hope you're listening and I hope you take this seriously. People, there are people like me who treat this like equity research. And so, yeah. uh, so part of my job is I'm, I'm basically an equity researcher for, uh, you know, uh, pretty decentralized funds. You know, there, there are guys in Europe, there are guys in the U S that are looking for projects in the U S uh, in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try to read everything I can. And if I can actually interview the participants, I will. Um, so yeah. I, I guess, let me go back with the ICO term. The reason I like the name is that I, I think it, it gives you a good idea of what they're trying to build because ICO sounds like IPO, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So an initial public offering, you know, you've got to go through layers of typically need to have, uh, a company that has audited financial statements, has been around long enough as to where they've got revenue and, and income, and maybe they're not profitable, but like there's, there's some history there. And then you've got to go through auditors, bankers, investment, uh, investment bankers and lawyers um, before you get on an exchange like the NASDAQ or something like that. And so the NASDAQ itself would be a centralized exchange. Um, the problem yeah. with this process is that like, there's a lot of middlemen, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of middlemen that you've got to, you've got to go through and um, you may need money much earlier in the process. And so this is why the ICO yep. process is, is so incredibly disruptive. Um, it's disruptive for early stage um, and all the way up until pre-IPO stage, I, I'd argue, because uh, uh, it addresses the problems if you're a founder. If, if you're a founder, you need liquidity right away. And, and so yep. on the flip side, um, so one of the, the other thing I would tell founders right now that are going through this process is that like, um, it's, it's an incredible source of liquidity. And you're seeing these founders in Vietnam who were able to raise four or $5 million. Uh, and they probably couldn't have six months ago. They probably couldn't have a year ago. Yeah, but correct. now they're correct. going through this process and they can do it. On the flip side, once you raise that token and it's floating on the public markets, you're essentially a, a publicly traded company. Yeah. And so you've got these problems that like, if you've got internal spats, like if you've got a problem with your co-founder and your co-founder and, and there's something wrong, like, you know, you miss an important development deadline um, or, you know, one of your systems gets breached or something, um, it's very possible that, you know, your price is going to drop due to insider trading. And so, you know, so, so these are things that like, um, you know, founders here are starting to realize it's like, wow, um, I raised all this money and I want to do good to my investors, but, you know, the price is rocking up and down and I'm getting flamed by email, Twitter and Discord. So 
yeah. you know, it, 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 it creates liquidity, but it introduces all these other problems that really before the only people that would be familiar with these problems would be later stage startup founders who were like series D thinking about going yeah. doing an IPO. And, and yeah. the trend before this ICO process was that like, you know, later stage startups were delaying, um, public listings before. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah, they're, right. they're, and one of the arguments was that Sarbanes-Oxley uh, had just made it too hard for companies to list, that the auditing requirements were just too much. And so uh, on the ICO yeah, okay. side, that, like, so on the idea on the ICO side is that this is like basically a deregulated market. And because it's a deregulated yep. market, um, there are going to be fewer projections, but things are going to move a lot faster. And, um, and yep. so that's what it's like to be a founder. Um, you know, Alex, you know, as a former hedge fund guy, I think the area you'd be really interested in would be on the DeFi stuff. And so, you know, one of the areas where yeah. there's been a lot of technical advancement progress has been in uh, automated market makers, AMMs. And so the most cutting edge technologies um, match in supply and demand. It's not going to be on, you know, traditional brokerage accounts. You know, when you're buying st U.S. stocks and mutual funds, um, a lot of those companies that have been around, um, you know, in Web 2.0, um, they have not really kept up, kept in touch with the technology. And so, you know, if you're, if you're trying to buy, uh, traditional stocks, uh, and bonds in the U S you'll kind of notice that the, the platforms are really clunky and like the trades don't execute yep. as fast as they should. And, um, Correct. I, Correct. I, I think one of the criticisms is because, um, we've allowed these financial companies to, um, consolidate. And so. You know, they're mm -hmm. getting scale through consolidation, but they're not necessarily investing um, in IT infrastructure and keeping up to date. And so the people that would be running that kind of uh, uh, fintech plumbing are, or they're operating in the DeFi industry now. That makes so much sense. I mean, like essentially what you're talking about is a more efficient financial system where it's less prone to actual... Corruption and collusion, right? So I think that's like a lot of big problems with these, you know, centralized clearinghouses. They bring the efficiencies, but it's also because it's power centralized. You know, a lot of these kind of uh, problems of corruption occur. You know, like you know, for running the books, front running, or whatever the case, or it's just the tech is just slower, right? So it's just, I mean, I, 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 I was here, talking to. I'll just narrow it down to the speed, right? Like, like the speed yeah, of clearing yeah. transactions is yeah. incredibly antiquated. Um, on these, on these old platforms. So the, the thing I'll say too, is that like, you know, if you're meeting these startups that are, are pitching, um, stock trading apps, uh, but they're not, you know, they're not crypto guys. Um, they typically will not talk about this kind of technology. You know, they're not talking about, yeah. uh, automated market makers and, and it's always kind yeah. of curious. It's just like, okay, you guys are running exchanges. Um, but you know, that's kind of not the story you're telling. Yeah. Well, uh, I tell you a story. I recently met up with my friend uh, who's in New York, used to work for, I think, JP Morgan back in the day when we were still like, you know, university or you were just graduated. And uh, he was a portfolio manager for high frequency trading. And he was telling me how they built their models. And it's just literally a string of if statements and a bunch of, you know, if this variable does this, if this variable does that. It's nothing really that crazy or complex, but it's just, you know, throwing probably raw compute power to run those really complex kind of, you know, uh, algorithmic trading. So 
uh, essentially, it's it's not what I imagined. You know, like you always hear the stories of you know quant quantum physicists and you know statisticians with PhDs building these kind of models. To a degree, there probably is this, but it's you know for a bold bracket bank who is doing that, it's not that complex. And then, if that's the old world of technology that's still kind of running or being laid on top, you know, you're right. They're missing this whole opportunity of even further efficiency. Um, and you know, for maybe they, they have a, an interest not to to do that, right? So it's it's, it's something that's going to be fully disrupted. Um, so that being said, you know, I think in between the lines, you know, like from a trading perspective, you're right. There's something to be gained from you know financial trading and liquidity, uh, and also the pain points of probably fundraising is what you would be looking at, I guess, if you're building. Then is that correct? Well, well, I mean, Alex, let me ask you this. You know, isn't a trade isn't it weird when you use one of these traditional apps that like you're basically trading New York hours? Yeah, correct. Right? Like eight to four. Why? Yeah, correct. Why? Yeah. Why not? There's no reason. Yeah, correct. Yeah. At this point in time, there's no need to. It makes no sense whatsoever. It, it, this is just like yeah. a weird, antiquated custom that they should get rid of immediately. Well, then, the, you know, what follows then is like, what exchange do you think is positioned to replace that? Is that yeah. like a Coinbase or something? Or well, okay, so the criticism of the Coinbase is just too centralized. Well, that's I think I think we gone full circle, right? That's my my point is like it's very hard to get away from this kind of centralized idea, which I guess that's the whole Jack Dorsey and uh, Andreessen, uh, I don't know, uh, feuding. I mean, do, do you want to comment on that or no? Oh, look, Jack can do no wrong. I mean, he built one of the major platforms that people who are building are using. Like Twitter is a major platform. Yeah, he can he can say Correct. whatever he wants, and he could be totally wrong. And I'll be totally grateful because he built that platform. True, true, true. Okay. Uh, do you have any take or have you been reading anything of how this, you know, how does the metaverse fit into Web3 or no comments on this? I, I, I Right now, I, I, I think of it as primarily gaming. You know, I mean, I think. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, gaming is kind of the frontier here. Uh, and I think, you know, there is kind of a full-on metaverse. Like, you know, I, I just got pitched this idea twice. It's weird because, you know, you get, you get kind of hear the same ideas over and over. And one was kind of like, like, let's create an office metaverse. Let's create like a professional metaverse. And, um, and look, in the future, I think we're going we're gonna to have something like it. But I, my guess is it doesn't get built directly. My guess is it gets built on a game. And then, and then the, the professional people come in, like kind of the suits, like the lawyers, the auditors, the bankers come yeah. in once the game is like gigantic. Well, interesting that you say the on-ramp is gaming. That's a big media narrative. Um, I recently had a, another podcast with my bunch of friends where, one of my friends' take was that the on-ramp will actually will be remote work, right? Because if you think about how the internet was developed post-World War II, comes from the government. Government has to fund everything first, infrastructure-wise. And the first layer of Web 1 is actually these giant corporates in the East Coast trying to communicate with personal computers on the West Coast, right? So the on-ramp of actually the internet actually is a corporate. And if you really think about it, you know, Web 3 and decentralization, the real, the real bulk of what what matters the most and what everyone does every day is going to work and that's logging in to a remote workspace right so would you say that the on-ramp could be work or gaming versus gaming or or do you think that's not really good uh way to think about how metaverse unfolds i i, I think i think the on-ramps for gaming are still the easiest um okay yeah i think i think that's the big one the, the other thing too is like kind of the suits it it takes it takes a lot to get them on the other side you know, I, I think they're not convinced yet. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Fair so enough. this is not necessarily an idea that I'm like super keen about just yet. Like that one seems like a little too early. Oh, well, you said the same thing about uh, crypt crypto earlier, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could totally wrong here. But uh, in, in yeah. general, I, I, uh, 
Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm kind of keen on games because I think that's uh, they, okay. the, the people in the game industry have thought about this the most. And the, yeah. the kind of the rap pull I've gone down recently is like uh, yeah. a game uh, economist. So like, you know, this is yeah. supposed to be like a, a new position in the future. And so whenever I'm going through white papers and I'm talking to these founders, I will ask them, uh, who is your game economist? Um, mm. And they usually point to the CFO or the lead tech person. Yeah. So uh, with this in mind then, you know, given the Web3, given the metaverse, how does blockchain and NFTs actually fit into this picture? Yeah. So um, I guess we can talk more about game economics here. Um, so in, in the play to earn model that Axie pioneered, uh, they figured out, and, and it's still, I guess it's still not clear. I think this, this was not the original aim, but it was a feature that turned into a big part of the game. Um, uh, yeah, I think they have like, 3 million uh, daily average users and like nearly half of them in the Philippines. And, you know, some of them are villagers who are uh, living off of uh, SLP, which is one of the three Axie tokens. And they've been able to earn it. It's actually been a liquid currency that they can use. Um, this, this is like a, a use case that's actually worked. And so a lot of people have been trying to copy it. Uh, but there are all these macroeconomic uh, consequences that happen. And so you actually need like a very thoughtful person designing the economy. Um, Axie has yeah. the benefit of having uh, really smart visionary founders. And one of the guys, uh, the chief growth officer, uh, Jeff, he actually studied economic history at Yale and wrote his senior thesis about mm. uh, economic history um, and uh, Alexander Hamilton. So, you know, his, his, his thought about macroeconomics way more than a typical uh, gaming founder. That being said, yeah. this so new that they make uh, disastrous decisions that affect millions of people. And so that, yeah. that's kind of a, uh, kind of exciting. Um, and I think we'll learn a lot about macroeconomics through virtual games. And so, you know, Alex, you know, as a hedge fund guy, I think the way I think about this is that like, uh, you know, hedge fund guys will do Monte Carlo simulations. Uh, yeah. if, if right now, central bankers are relatively limited to past experience or curable evidence. Now, virtual games, we have the equivalent of Monte Carlo simulations. It's mm. a very fascinating way to think about it. I mean, are, are hedge fund guys actually engaging in this kind of way to think about it? And that's just what do you think this is why they're kind of they're pushing more investments to diversify into you know, the startup and VC area? No, I mean, I, 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 you know, I think uh, if you're a smart VC investor or hedge fund guy that's looking to invest in uh, game economies, um, you should be thinking yeah. about the underlying economics and, and you should be asking teams hard questions about um, uh, how they view the economy. And, and one thing I'll say is that the people in the crypto universe tend to have a deflationary bias. Like these are people, yeah. I mean, a, a part of the community, you know, their macroeconomic views are like Voldbug, you know, the, the people that came in through um, crypto to uh, Bitcoin you know, who are like up in arms about the Federal Reserve creating like a ton of money. Um, those are yeah. people who are not very keen on like putting money as a solution, um, yeah. you know, whenever when you have economic problems. Um, yeah. I, I worry that this is going to negatively affect uh, games that hit it. So I, I suspect mm. that there are going to, uh, in the future, quite a few very successful play to earn companies um, that make incorrect macroeconomic decisions. So you know, maybe they'll do the equivalent of like raising interest rates when they shouldn't. 
you know, they'll, they'll inadvertently, um, exacerbate mm-hmm. a recession. And so when that happens, Interesting. You know, the players will go to another economy. They'll go to another game. Okay. It's so you're saying there's going to be a real world effect of monetary policy and these kind of games that have their own economies. Um, yeah. I don't, how, do, how does that, how does exactly does that work if they're not really connected? If what's not connected? Well, because you're, you're telling, because I mean, the fee, there's, there's two separate kind of fiats, right? So one supply is not connected to the other supply. So why, why are they being affected by each other? Uh, give me an example. What one supply and what, what other supply? What currency? Oh, so like the, the, the US, the US dollar, right? So the yeah. Federal Reserve prints the money through bond, you know, open market operations. Uh, so if they want to affect the economy, well, because the main point of the Federal Reserve is to have price stability, long-term job growth, inflation, oh, at least traditionally. I mean, that kind of has morphed to something different today where somehow stock is involved in this. But essentially, right. that, that's the role. And they, they do this through interest rate, uh, you know, manipulation. Um, but so what, what is your comment? How does that connect to a world of, you know, a big gaming universe where people are plugged in with, you know, different currency, different economics? Or like how, how are they connecting to each other? How are they affecting each other? Yeah, so if you have a game that has big enough scale, and I think this is going to happen very soon, you know, that we'll have a game that has market caps of above $10 billion, and, you know, we'll have yeah. 5 to 10 million people playing on them every day, um, yeah. you will have to make choices about your currencies. And so, you know, Axie Infinity has three currencies. And, yeah. uh, you know, I will ask founders, you know, uh, what's the ideal number of currencies? How many currencies do you have? Uh, what's the relationship between the currencies? Will you have a fixed exchange rate between the currencies? Um, and you know, what will you do if transactions on your platform go down? Um, and so yeah. these, these are all central banking questions. So the, the, the head economist yeah. of the game is the central banker for the game. And, and you, know, you will have to make decisions that react um, to the real, real world economy. So essentially what... I mean, if we're to look at this, the whole big picture of Axie Infinity, it's pretty much a, one of the best implementations and manifestations of everything we've been talking about, Web3, blockchain, everything, right? It's 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 probably one of the best examples, right? Yeah. I mean, right now, I mean, that's Which, that's the economy that people are, are trying to copy. But what, what I'm trying to put forward yeah. is that, like, you know, they created their economy under very specific circumstances and for their specific needs. If you're trying to build right. a game like that, you will have different needs and, and you should think about the economy differently. Yeah. Okay. Um, what, one of my friends thinks the reason why Axie Infinity is massively successful is because it's just another form of legalized gambling. Would you agree to the statement? I mean, that seems like a very, uh, I, I try not to take moral stances about these kinds of things. Like, um, I, yeah. I think if you start, like, I think a lot of innovation happens in, in, in markets that get poo-pooed or, or looked down upon for very, uh, for very judgmental reasons that I think are counterproductive. Um, so if you say, like, oh, that's a bubble, that's speculative, uh, that's a frivolous game. Um, so I'll give you an example. You know, so one question I get a lot is, like, you know, are we in the middle of some crazy gaming bubble in Vietnam? And it's hard for me to say... Um, it's hard for me to say that this is a bubble because it's very likely there's going to be at least three breakout games. And so if you fund 150 games here, if three of them become a big deal, this was not a bubble. Yeah. And so I, you know, I think there's going to be at least three big ones. Well, the other, the other big one already is the, the company in Vietnam that did the, the, the tapping game on the, the pads, right? I forget the name of the company. Um, Yeah. That's also, 
Yeah, Flap yeah, yeah. which was already a unicorn, right? I think. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think you already have two ones. So, I mean, it's it's already a serious contender. It's already on the map. I, um, I, I mean, I think this just also points to the, the power to the decentralization, right? It's kind of like a proof point and, you know, it's just moving along in that kind of direction. Um, can the Vietnamese government have a say of how this shapes out or have a way to interfere or regulate or be a part of it? Right. So this is the question. I, this is what I mentioned earlier about the IMF, uh, you know, the IMF's writing here. Uh, yeah. As a regulator, this is very, very difficult to regulate. Um, so, so one reason I, I pointed to earlier for as a catalyst for crypto adoption in Vietnam is that Vietnam has capital controls. Um, Vietnam has a very good reason to have capital controls. And you know, Alex, you're, you're I think you're, are you sitting in Malaysia? Yep, Malaysia. Yeah, so Malaysia has yeah. the most successful capital controls like uh, case study here. You know, during the Asia financial crisis, they. Uh, yeah. They installed capital controls and the IMF kind of had to, uh, grit their teeth. And, you know, it sounds like there was some internal debate where, you know, there were people within the IMF who actually supported the decision too. Um, but it, it, it went against like kind of free market doctrine. Um, mm -hmm. and now, um, you know, the reason you would have capital controls is that you were worried about defending a fixed, uh, a fixed, a, a fixed rate currency regime. And so if yeah. your, if your currency is pegged to the dollar, um, in order to stabilize your currency, you need to have massive currency reserves. Yeah. And, and if you're worried that like, you know, the dollars or other foreign currency in your market are going to suddenly leave your economy, you probably need to put up capital controls. And so Malaysia did this, Vietnam did this yeah. and, and you know, it, it, it worked. And so, you know, Vietnam, yeah. um, has good reason, uh, for doing wow. this. Um, and, and, you know, one thing, if you have a fixed, uh, a fixed rate currency regime, you typically want to have, uh, you know, at least four months of foreign currency. Um, so you can intervene in the markets and, and like use dollars to buy oil, right? If you run out of yeah. dollars to buy oil, you're going to probably have a financial crisis. Uh, Correct. And and so those are good reasons. Those are good legitimate reasons, and, the, and the, that is what the IMF will tell you if you're a central banker in Hanoi, right? Um, but if you're an entrepreneur you on the ground, if you're a business person, and you actually need to be able to you know exchange VIP for euros and dollars, it'd be very very tricky. And so um, and and so if I were a central bank regulator, uh, and and you you start noticing this leakage that the capital controls yeah. become gradually less effective every day, that's a problem. And I, I actually don't think of a good, I can't think of a good solution yet because this is where decentralization yeah. is a very powerful technological idea and that like it's, it's, it's going to work yeah. so effectively. And this is basically what Hillary Clinton was saying. And so, yeah, I agree with well, Hillary Clinton. Well, yeah, well, well, China has has tried to do this, right? They uh, they had some form of a ban of cryptos, right? And the, I mean, like for authoritarian regimes to to maintain control, they they need to have total control over everything, right? So I mean, it's I mean, I don't know how they would enforce it they, if they if they see it going on, they don't like it, they don't want a part of the system, they could just jail these people, right? They could jail the guys that the actual talent needed to kind of power it, or you're saying that's not possible? It's still run from this, you know decentralized outside, but give access to Vietnam somehow still, you think? So it's, it's even if there's no way to physically stop this. Yeah. So there's a hedge fund analyst that I really like named Lynn Alden. And so she makes the point that um, when China cracked down on Bitcoin mining, and I think at the time, China was doing like 40% of the mining globally for Bitcoin. 
Yeah. Uh, the miners moved to other parts of the world. Um, a lot of them moved to the U.S. and the system worked fine. And so, yeah. you know, this this would give you an idea of, of you know how strong uh, the technology is for decentralizing. So that, like, you know, China, you know, a central authority in Beijing is trying to make this illegal, and and it it does not uh, affect the Bitcoin network all that much. Correct. So, I mean, effectively, you would have to believe in the, like the, the idea of symbology then that this does change the nature of how government communities form, right? You could create a state digitally and you will need less reliance on governments well, in the future. Right? Well, so Alex, the, the right. So the, 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 I think the political science view here isn't so much the military, but the currency. Right. So yeah. the, the, the thing we had before, the startup cost for currency is much lower than what you and I were taught in college. So the kind of the narrative that we may have learned right. is that like you want to create your own currency, you need to build a country, build a military, you know, have a bunch of guns protecting your central bank. And yeah. and yeah. now that apparently is not true. Like it takes much less than that. Yeah. So you you can create an idea of a state or what you value together as a group of individuals, but you still can ignore the fact that you still need to tie this to the physical aspect. I mean, you would need some type of I don't know, you still exist physically, geographically somewhere, right? And uh, I don't know, there is a physical aspect of power in military too, right? Right. How, how do you reconcile these two? Uh, what are you asking me to reconcile? I mean that governments essentially will want to retain control and power physically through military force and stuff. But then and, uh, and how and does that, that, that like, look? That's why fiat yeah, currency works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that is, that's why fiat so, currency works. And uh, the cryptocurrencies are, I would argue, based on fiat currency. Yeah. Okay. If, if one wants to get involved then in the Vietnam ecosystem, whether it be, you know, Web3, DeFi, crypto, whatever, like what is your advice of getting involved in Vietnam startup scene now? Oh, I mean, it's a great time to build something. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's kind of always a good time to get me. Yeah, markets are really dynamic. There's, a lot you can do. Yeah. Um, if you like, if you like games, this is like an amazing time. Um, yeah. If you like the game industry, like definitely, you know, this this one kind of feels like a gaming renaissance. Um, and yeah. and so personally, when I'm looking at games that I would play myself, um, I'm looking for games that like you know, twelve year old Don would have played. And so these tend to be like very mm. violent games that like you know, you would, <laughs> that our mothers would try to take away from us. Um, Correct. It's, yeah. Those are the games that I'm looking to back. So I'm looking for things that yeah. like look like, you know, I would have played Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Tekken, you know, for hours and hours. And I, you know, I'm I'm looking for Correct. like decapitation, yeah. like you know, a dragon biting your head <laughs> off in Mortal Kombat. So like, yeah. you know, um, so Grand Theft Auto was like another game that was like really, you know, that I, I, I really liked. Um, and have, have, are you familiar with um, Yield Guild Games, YGG? Um, I mean, maybe I am, but I'm not, that, con that, I, that specific phrase I'm not as familiar with. Okay, so uh, I, I'll, I'll put my rocket internet hat on because I've been thinking about Oliver Samware a lot recently because of YGG. Okay. So um, YGG is a startup in the Philippines. It's very clever. Um, the founder, Gabby, yeah. realized that like you know he could make money by um, buying Axie NFTs and then um, uh, getting scholars who are basically players, um, mm -hmm. recruiting players from Filipino villages, training them up, 
um, you know, buying their axes for them, teaching them how to play. And, you know, they're earning SLP and they split the SLP earnings uh, 70, 30%. Mm-hmm. And okay. so, you know, Gabby actually, um, uh, YGG received uh, $5 million from Andreessen Horowitz. Um, the last I heard, they had 5,000 scholars. And so they have mm-hmm. 5,000 players um, uh, who primarily play Axie, but they have access to all these other games. And so because there are so many of these blockchain NFC games getting funded for five, seven, ten million dollars this creates demand as to where like you know look some of these games are not going to succeed some of these games are not that good some of these games like you know it's gonna be a miss like the investors just back the wrong team or you know just bad luck happens with startups it's not fraud it's just about just bad luck uh and and so what what they've created is kind of like artificial demand and and so uh ygg Mm -hmm. has its own clones so there are all these guilds that will recruit players and uh and, and, and so now these players and these guilds have access to the new games. And so they can look at the new games and then get immediate feedback. So yeah. you can think of them as like a, a instant market research. And so if you're Gabby and you're YGG and you have, you know, 5,000 players and like, let's say 2,000 are dedicated to Axie, you could set aside 200 players and be like, hey, let's test five new games and let's see who, Correct. you know, let's see which game reacts, uh, gets the best reaction from our scholars. And then we can mm-hmm. go buy that coin or we can go buy that game. And so for me, when I'm looking at the white papers, yeah. one of the things I'm trying to figure out is, is this game fun enough to play for 20 hours a week? You know, yeah. would, would, a, would a 12-year-old Don want to play this game 12 hours a week or uh, 20 hours a week? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very good point because, I mean, I, I, I've i been visiting some of my old games. You know, Diablo 2 Resurrected came out and those were the games that I played too much in high school of why, why I didn't go to better schools and whatnot. But um I think that that whole point, I think, you know, I think your idea of on-ramp gaming makes does hold some credence because it's the only thing that you would spend nonstop hours being addicted to it, being plugged into it. And with, you know, the advent of microtransactions, it's just so easy to spend, you know, hundreds, thousands of dollars on things that exist digitally. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. But, you know, with that being said, I guess my last question then is that is that what the plan is? So are you going to be focusing on building no, 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 and no, no, investing no, no. or what, 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 what's, what's the plan? What's the plan going forward? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like I mentioned earlier, I'm doing equity research for, uh, you know, some investors. Um, you know, I help with some projects um, because I've done so many. I've read so many white papers. Now I'm like actually helping some yeah. projects that like. You know, I, I, I like the team. I like what they're doing. Um, and, you know, so I'm actually like helping with white papers. Um, I've, right. I've read and, and now writing a lot more. And so, you know, okay. one of the things I would tell founders that when they're putting together their white paper, really use this as an opportunity to think about your vision and how you're going to execute and implement your plan. Um, and, you know, don't treat this like homework. Like, take this pretty seriously. Um, you know, when you're writing a white paper, you're trying to address, uh, three constituencies, you know, you're trying to address your future investors, your future, uh, colleagues yeah. or probably employees that you're going to hire, um, and the future yeah. players that are going to play this game. And so the idea is how do you get all three yeah. involved? How do you get your, your future investors, colleagues, and players involved? Um, the guilds here yeah. kind of blur the line. Right. They blur the line between investors and players. And so uh, guilds like YGG, uh, you should be thinking of them as investors and players. And you will need to, um, you know, kind of 
address their concerns and interests. And so, you know, this is a great time yeah. to do it. Um, and, and then, you know, for a reader like me who really deeply cares about the economic questions, I want to get a sense that the founders have, are not just copying blindly, but are thinking about like, you know, ways to improve and optimize, um, economic systems, game design, and just making the game as fun as possible. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's probably the most important thing. Well, I, I think you're just speaking to one of the most important tenets of building early stage far startups. And I think we, we alluded this talking about Axie Infinity with the, one of the founders who went to Yale is that they actually have thought about it deeply enough and have actual clarity. I think a lot of these people, some of these people will be lucky where it's kind of like this big wave that they just ride. They just happen to be lucky, but they actually didn't really think about it. So there's those cases where people become successful anyway. But, you know, I think the ones who really make the profound changes are the ones who actually know what they're solving, even if it's wrong, because with that clarity, you know how to pivot later on. And that's just like you said, it's not homework. You actually have to you're not trying to be caught up with the noise and like you actually know something fundamentally about the technology. You actually know fun something fundamentally about how the economics work. And you're actually building something of, that creates the actual value at the end of the day. Right. So I think that's a very good point. You know, it's just one of the tenets of building early stage startups to to get actual traction. And even if you don't get the traction, you mess up. At least you had the clarity of know how to pivot the company later on. Uh, you know, so it's just all around just makes you a better founder, I think. Um, so it, it sounds like you're more of leaning towards being an investor with the potential of joining one of these companies one day. Is, is that how I hear it? Uh, I mean, I think, I think for the next few years, whatever I'm going to be doing, it's going to be, um, yeah, it's going to be blockchain related, but, uh, Hey, can I tell you about the DeFi stuff? Cause like, I think the hedge fund guy in you will really sure. like this stuff. Okay. So, um, yeah. DeFi stands for decentralized finance. And as I, as I said earlier, um, a lot of the really smart quant guys that would have like, you know, in the last 15 years would have maybe let's say gone to like, um, a quant fund. The ones that are in crypto are building products and services on, on uh, crypto that are amazing. And so I get, there are a yeah. couple that I'm, I'm looking at really closely right now. Um, one is a project by uh, Redacted Cartel. And so they have a voting protocol called Butterfly. And um, that has done really well. But uh, th they're basically uh, trying to get governance tokens um, and, and uh, a voting block for these two other projects. Um, one would be Olympus DAO. Um, Olympus DAO is kind of like a basket of currency, um, of, of synthetic currencies, um, cryptocurrencies. And I, I read one analysis that yeah. compared it to the IMF special drawing rights. So the IMF SDRs. And so the, the SDR is like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, a basket of, um, big international currencies, um, that the IMF right. will sometimes deposit into, uh, developing countries. And, and so. Olympus DAO was, was um, kind of pitched as a crypto version of that. Um, but instead of using, um, you know, big international currencies, they're using big cryptocurrencies. Um, and so that one's taken mm. off. And another one is Curve Finance. And so Curve Finance um, is an automated market maker, an AMM. And it is seamlessly handling transactions between two um, pairs of very, very closely related currencies. So, um, the two stable coins that would be like most associated with the dollar would be like, let's say like USDC and, uh, DAI yep. makers. Uh, and so if, if for whatever reason you need to exchange those two, Curve Finance is the plumbing in the background that's doing that seamlessly. And, and the guy mm. that did it is, okay. you know, a Russian, um, Quan. 
And so yeah. like, like there are these parts of like the, uh, of decentralized finance where like, you know, the smartest guys in the world figure out, okay, like this is a very liquid market. And, uh, you know, if I provide the most liquidity and the best, uh, technological, uh, solution for, um, you know, doing those trades, you know, that is, yeah. that actually is, uh, pretty useful. Well, you're, you're bringing up an interesting point. I, I think a big portion of DeFi and just crypto in general, uh, there's a there's this whole idea of you still need to build out the infrastructure. Um, how much of this infrastructure do you think still is missing f in order for fiat to come shift from what we know as fiat of you know regular currencies we know over to cryptocurrencies? Because essentially, crypto is just shifting a fiat. That's all it is. But but in order to support that, you know, speeds need to increase. You know, belief needs to be there and actual actual technology needs to be there. So how far are we away from having this enough infrastructure for the shift to happen? Or do you think about it differently? I, I, I would say that the infrastructure here is the most advanced in the world. It is way, way more advanced than like the Swift banking system and whatever powers like your, your dad's brokerage account. Okay. Yeah. And the yeah. other thing too is like, 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 I think this is what, what distinguishes me from um, a lot of people in the crypto community is I, I am not um, philosophically or temperamentally against fiat currency. Right. So like, yep. like it, 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 that was one of those things that actually probably slowed down my descent into crypto is that like, there were all these old yeah. bugs, all these people railing against fiat. Yeah, of I, course. I, I'm of never going to be one of those guys. Like, like, you know, yeah. in terms of like, what I'll say is there's going to be a lot of, um, there, there, there's going to be incredible growth in, in crypto and, uh, crypto innovation. Um, but like, you know, you can see a possibility where like both sides keep growing, you know, like fiat money is going to grow mm. and uh, crypto assets will grow. I, I kind of believe that's like, at least for the short and medium term, my, that's my belief that they kind of grow in tandem. Um, like, but, you know, I think at some point it's just like, you know, everyone gets caught up to the point of mass adoption where it just, from an efficiency standpoint, from an actual physical standpoint, it just makes more sense. Just everyone just uses digital currency because right. what's the point of having actual coinage, right? It doesn't make sense. Well, so this is my idea. So my idea with the IMF, and I mentioned this earlier, special drawing rights, the SDRs. Yeah. The, the SDRs, yeah. it would be more efficient uh, and, and probably more reliable if there was like an SDR DAO. And so if you could get yeah. enough like, you know, smart crypto people together, and you create a synthetic yeah. version of the IMS currency and you sell it to the IMF. Yeah. So that's why well, I do there's, right there's now. There's a bunch of people, but there's a bunch of people who already have created crypto uh, ETFs and indexes because my sister has no clue what the hell this, any of this means, but she wants exposure in her portfolio. So she just kind of dumps some portion of her portfolio into these indexes. I mean, that's, and I mean, and so the thing is the world is not defined of what, how it looks, whether it will be one coin, many coins, a basket of coins, uh, and even, you know, how, how that even plays out, you know, from region to region or from, I don't know, from cluster to cluster, right? So it's possible that you could build a better index, like, I don't know, an index that's more representative of what the future is going to be. And then you can, you know, in a sense, like you build your own ETF for crypto, right? Or SDR, like you said. Is, I mean, do you think that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, the ETF, like, I, I've seen these headlines and I'm, I'm thinking about, like, you know, I, I guess when people are, are thinking about how the big traditional finance players will approach this, they'll approach it that way. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll try to build um, products for probably just Bitcoin and Ethereum early on that yeah. um, 
people who are like, let's say 50 years old and above who want exposure can get it and, and will feel safe yeah. doing it. Um, yeah. I, I suspect that the, the problem there is just going to be the, the fees. You know, so I mean, if you buy, um, you know, a lot of ETFs, the management fees are just not reasonable. And so my, correct, my hunch is that like the fees are going to be unreasonable. So that you just basically replicate the same thing, but on a blockchain then, right? And and so then that product almost lower the costs. That product almost already exists. So the product already exists, you said? Uh, I mean, I haven't gone looking for it, but like, you know, like the, like the mutual fund equivalent that, um, the traditional players are yes. probably going to be pushing on uh, retail investors that the, yeah. yeah, like, like that product almost already exists somewhere else for lower fees. Don't, don't you think that, don't you think that these traditional institutional investors, when they finally wake up and get into it and they are institutional money already is getting into it. Isn't that the first thing they're going to do is replicate their products on it? Replicate their products. Sorry. Tell me more. Right. So, I mean, if you're a traditional fund, you just, you know, buy an exchange or buy, I don't know, uh, some, some existing, uh, you know, basket of coins that have, have mass adoption already. And then you just replicate your same like ETF products, but onto the blockchain instead. I mean, so in a sense, like the, cause the question is like, why don't you just go build it out since you can't find it. Right. But as an entrepreneur, but I guess the counter argument is can't, why can't these big guys just copy it and do it themselves later? Copy, you, you wouldn't be worried about that. Copy what? Copy your, the idea of just building a more efficient ETF on a blockchain or these kind of mutual funds on a blockchain. Um, I mean, w one, one obvious problem here is just manpower. Like that's true. I mean, like, globally, uh, right. I mean, it's, yeah, there, there aren't enough good blockchain engineers and for the most part, the, correct. Yeah. the, the good ones are not going to be going to traditional companies that are, um, you know, that could have blockchain strategies that take three years to implement. So if, if you're an investor or say if you're a builder with the end sight of just wanting to have a successful startup or exit, right? The idea would be you would build that kind of mutual fund idea on a blockchain, but then with the idea of that later on you would be acquired by one of these big players because they couldn't do it. Maybe. I mean, there was a Thai, there was a, a Thai exchange that just got acquired for a ton of money from uh, one of the big banks. But um, yeah, you know, honestly, one of the reasons that got me like, less interested initially was that like, you know, a lot of the business models that seem to have proliferated seem to have been exchanges of lenders. And so I was like, okay, I'm not yeah. sure if, where I see the, the innovation. And, and, and now because yeah. of the blockchain games, um, and then like the, the, probably the more esoteric, uh, DeFi products, like I, mean, I think now I'm, yeah. I'm convinced. And I, I would say the ICO process itself is a major innovation. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, um, you know, we talked a lot about the big macro context, and I guess for the last question, then you know, uh, because of time. But how, like, you know, from in a real tangible perspective, you know, if we were to project this 10, 20, 30 years, what's the most tangible change or impact in the world from DeFi that you think that's going to completely, you know, change how we do everything that we're doing today? That's different. Oh man, that that question is probably too big for me to handle. Um, I, I I think it's going to make. Uh, I think it, I, I think in terms of the DeFi uh, fintech technology, like the fintech projects that aren't on, that aren't dealing, that, that don't have kind of a blockchain element at its core, um, I imagine they're going to struggle. Hmm. Okay. I mean, like really like right, the, 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 the plumbing technology, uh, the, 
again, you know, there's a reason so many exchanges are built on decentralized platforms because Correct. like, you know, that, that's a very yeah. interesting use case. And so one area where I probably didn't give yeah. it enough credit early on. And so the proliferation yeah. of AMMs, okay. like automated market makers, um, you know, yeah. that's the, 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 the cutting edge stuff seems to be, you know, coming from blockchain guys. It's not coming from, um, you know, traditional yeah. finance. Like they're not thinking about it. If anything, they, they think it's so, a cost I mean, center. Yeah. If I'm to extrapolate, your biggest conviction is probably just a revolution of the traditional financial markets where it's modernized through just everyone using blockchain, essentially, right? Which or means more participation, more access, less power to these centralized authorities, essentially. And yeah, but you know, also just kind of getting rid of like kind of relatively strange customs, like the New York trading hours thing drives me nuts. Yeah, correct. Like why? Yeah, yeah. Why? Yeah. There is no reason to be, what are the hours? Like eight to four? It's nine, nine to, yeah, nine to five, nine to four. For New York. Four, four, four yeah, like four. Yeah, yeah that makes right. no sense. Like, just make it 24 hours. Yeah. I mean, they do have a few exchanges that are 24 hours, but the traditional ones still exist for probably just tradition alone, which, yeah, which is ridiculous. Yeah, Which produces, a, you know, massive amounts of liquidity and volume. So you're right. It's a bit weird. So, I mean, if anyone, like, why should people get in contact with you? What Do you, do you want to plug anything or any final comments? Um, I mean, the final comments I really, I think, are for founders. Um, Feel free to reach out to me if you're if you're you've got a cool project and you want a fresh set of eyes to look at your white paper. Um, I, you know, I would take the process really seriously and and use this as an organizing structure um, for you to communicate with your team and also for you to clarify your vision on what you want to do. Um, you know, I know this is a great opportunity to raise money, but for a lot of founders, you know, you have no idea what the future looks like. So this may be you know your your one big chance to raise money. Um, Correct. so, yeah. you know, if this is your one chance to build something meaningful, um, you know, go big, think big, uh, you know, mm. don't, don't just try to be, uh, a clone of a clone of a clone. Um, you know, if you had some wider ambition that you think you can use this idea as a vehicle to attain, uh, you know, put it down in paper now. And one thing that I, 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 I coach a lot of people on, um, is not being shy about their grandest ambitions because this is something that people not every day do people ask you what's your vision what's your dream and and this is a chance yeah. for you to do that uh and mm -hmm. you know i'll tell you as as an investor or a future employee or uh, someone playing the game you know i i want to i'm going to gravitate towards projects that have uh, a big vision yeah okay uh and then how could they reach you um ask alex <laughs> okay, you can contact uh, me uh, from here and then I'll connect you to Don. Uh, okay, great. Man. So thanks. All right, thanks so much for your time and I appreciate all, all the insights. Thanks a lot, Alex. Bye. Okay. Hey, listeners, thank you for listening to Don's episode. If you enjoyed the content or learned something new, please share it with your friends and family or anyone who would benefit and give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. So, what did we learn today? Crypto is booming in Vietnam. This comes from having real pain points that are unique to the Vietnam ecosystem mixed in with the right talent that have unlocked opportunities for Vietnam that have been long coming in my opinion. From early 2010, from the first e-commerce boom to the late decade, it feels like recognition has been slow from the investment community. The talent has always been there from a technical perspective and Vietnam is further locking down this competitive advantage. The second wave of capital, talent, and entrepreneurship is even more substantial than ever, and we're finally seeing investment rounds and valuations that match the bold innovation ideas 
that are in the market. At the same time, personally, I know there's a lot of old world bureaucracy choking some deals, but that is where crypto holds great promise for countries like Vietnam with tight controls, a great talent, and a hungry workforce with a rapidly growing economy. For anyone interested in the Southeast Asia region, it would be a hard argument to make to overlook Vietnam and the potential impact it will have in the near future. See you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.